week's Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 5. You can find it on page This week's New Testament passage is uh, from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and you can find that on page 1001 of your pew Bible. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. morning, church. So uh, it's the second Sunday of Advent. Hopefully you've noticed that by now. Uh, we've got two of our candles lit. And uh, these candles, these weeks of anticipation of Christ's second coming and the, the re-journeying of Christ's first coming 
each of these Sundays, each of these candles have a specific theme. Uh, does anyone know the themes off the top of your head? Quiz. This isn't hypothetical. I see hope, faith. Someone said faith. Hope, faith, joy, and then love. You got them just out of order. Good participation points. Good job, everyone. Uh, I had to look these up yesterday. So uh, hope, faith, joy, and then love. Um, and then, of course, on Christmas, we, we light the fifth one. And so this week, we uh, have this theme of, of faith. And we're looking at uh, the lectionary gospel text of the story of John the Baptist. So with that, uh, let, us, let us pray. God, I, uh, I suspect that each of us here, if we're honest, could use more hope and faith and joy and love in our lives. And so we open our hearts to you now. O oh, Spirit of God who gives these good gifts to those who wait on you. Lord, we pray already trusting that you will meet us in the waiting. As you speak through your word now, fill our hearts and make a way where there seems to be no way in us, as only you can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people prayed. Amen. So John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist strikes me as a pretty intense guy. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Uh, I bet most of you can think of someone maybe at work or maybe there's someone in your friend group or in your family that is just really intense and uh, they're wonderful, uh, they're just really intense. Um, and I think John the Baptist is, is one of those guys. There's, there's nothing he does halfway, and that's certainly a part of his calling uh, as a prophet who is uh, like Elijah, one who prepares the way for the next prophet. Um, he's preparing the way for Jesus, of course. But John the Baptist, we know, lived in the wilderness, uh, for clothing, he just wore camel fur and a leather belt, and his diet consisted of only locusts, insects, a uh, pretty crunchy diet, I imagine, and wild honey. And his whole life was just the singular purpose of being the, the forerunner to the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. You know, I've been thinking lately about uh, work-life balance, and I think it's fair to say John is not a, a great example of someone who's nailed that work-life balance. And 
it makes sense if you remember the story in Luke's gospel of uh, even in his mother's womb, if you remember when, when Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb, just being in proximity of, of Jesus. So even in the womb, John the Baptist is already pretty intense. And what might, might it have done to someone, I can't help but wonder, to grow up hearing from your parents, if you remember the story of his father, Zechariah, who had this role as, as a high priest and uh, had an angel visit him and close his mouth for the whole pregnancy, right? So there's this prophecy about John the Baptist that ends up, I'm sure, shaping his entire life around this clear, singular purpose of preparing the way and pointing to Jesus. And so by the time he reaches age 30 or so, his message was quite clear-cut. Repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is near. One of the things I've noticed about uh, intense people in my life is that uh, that intensity can often come with a certain certainty about things. I'm, some of you know the Enneagram, these nine personalities. I'm a nine, so I live in like the lack of certainty. I merge with everyone, and I, the good thing is I can see the different nuances. Those of you who are nines, we can see uh, we live in the gray. Um, can make us very indecisive, frustratingly so at times to others. Because we see and we kind of see both sides of things. But, but John the Baptist seems in his intensity to have this, this certainty, which can be wonderful. Intense people like him can be great pursuers of justice because of that clarity. But there's also this, this shadow side sometimes that can come, of course, with, with certainty. And so it's all the more surprising then when a little bit later in the story is John the Baptist who is so singularly focused, who is so confident, who is so clear about his purpose and his mission and his message, finds himself behind bars and wondering if he was right about Jesus after all. Do you remember that part of the story? It's, it's told in Matthew's gospel as well as Luke, Luke's. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, not long after the passage that we read this morning, tells us that John the Baptist was arrested not long after the scene of, of uh, preaching repentance for the for, forgiveness of sins, and then he baptizes Jesus. But not long after, he's arrested and then... The Gospels tell us he finds himself imprisoned and he sends a message, two messengers to Jesus, and he asks this question, are you the one we've been waiting for or is there another? John the Baptist seems to have had a crisis of faith. 
I wonder about this, and I wonder, you know, it's one thing to have a crisis of faith and to have these kind of doubts that you just keep to yourself, right? I think probably all of us here have have had those thoughts where we've wondered, is this Jesus really who I thought he was? It's another to maybe share your doubts with a, a close confidant in a safe space. But what level of crisis must John the Baptist have reached to send messengers with a note to Jesus to ask him directly, was I right about you? Or are you not the Messiah after all? To risk the the publicity of, of that. Perhaps he had some awareness that his whole life uh, would be recorded in the, the history of salvation in the scriptures and that that story of his doubt might be included. Or to risk the response of Jesus, which could have perhaps been crushing for Jesus, that his own family member, his cousin, his herald, was doubting his authenticity. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, um, we used to visit a, a family in the suburbs outside of Vancouver. Jen and I would visit the Clarks, and they would feed us, and we'd do our laundry, and it was, uh, it was a little bit of an escape from our life in the city to visit some people in the suburbs. And I remember uh, doing the dishes after dinner one night with, with John Clark, the dad. And I don't remember how we got onto this topic, but. He, I, I remember standing next to him, loading the dishwasher, and he said, you know what I don't understand about John the Baptist is, how could this guy have gotten to that point where in prison he, he doubts whether Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah? He said, I never understood that. I mean, John the Baptist, he was there. He was the one that baptized Jesus when the heavens were ripped open, Mark says. And a dove came down, and the voice of God could be heard saying, This is my son, whom I love. John the Baptist was there. How could he come to doubt it? How do you forget that? He saw the miracles. He had this special anointing from God. And I remember standing next to my friend John and looking at him and being surprised that he was surprised by John the Baptist's doubt, because I said, oh, I have such a different experience of that. Because so often that's been my own experience of faith, of vacillating between these moments of what you might call a mountaintop experience, where you feel like you've experienced the presence and the power and the love of God in a way that you feel deep in your bones. And then not long after, sometimes even the same day or within the same hour, finding myself doubting my own experience. Doubting if I might just be fooling myself after all. 
the experience of faith all throughout the scriptures and all throughout the, the history of God's people and throughout the history of the church is often an experience of God's absence. And it seems, perhaps more often than not, the experience of faith is one of waiting on God to show God's self and wondering if we've really gotten it right about this Jesus or if hope is to be found somewhere else. I find this to be a major theme in my, my pastoral care as I sit down with, with many of you as you go through the ups and the downs of life. I think a lot of us uh, grew up in churches that if they weren't explicitly preaching a prosperity gospel, you know, that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise, uh, there was at least a messaging between the lines, right, that, that gave us this expectation that if you, if you commit your life to Christ and you follow God as best you know how, then you can expect a life full of blessing and of something of the protection of God and perhaps even protection from suffering. And we, we pick this up somewhere along the way and then it's devastating to one's faith when something comes crashing down and the story that you thought your life was turning out to be ends up being a very different story. And I think growing up, I, I, I knew that good Christians suffer. I knew that even faithful Christians get sick and die or experience great tragedy. But I think I, I always believed that it was somebody else, if that makes sense. But somehow the promises of God meant that whatever would happen to me, the various parts and threads of my story would all turn out okay. And then all of a sudden, a marriage ends. Or long-held dreams you've had seem to have the, the door closed and you find yourself wondering and questioning, Jesus, are you still there? Jesus, was I wrong to put my faith in you? And I don't know about you, but I've, I find it comforting to know that even John the Baptist reached that point. And that really... Uh, you know, it's, it shows up over and over and over again in the stories of the heroes of the faith. Abraham, even after hearing the voice of God and receiving this, this promise of an heir, 
still waited years and years and years without any explanation. We still don't know why. Before he finally comes back to God questioning, did I hear you right? Something doesn't add up here. I can't seem to make sense of your promises and my experience of this life. We see it with Moses. We see it with David years and years and years in the wilderness. After God had promised him he would be king after the victory over Goliath as a young boy. And then it turns out King Saul is not too ready to give up his throne. And David lives years and years and years in the wilderness. Even Israel's history There's over 400 years at this point in the story in which God, it seems, has been silent. There hadn't been a prophet since Malachi, writing in about 420 B.C. And it's easy to just skip over that, to to get to the last page of Malachi in our Old Testament and just flip one page and we're there to the beginning of the Gospels and there's John the Baptist. 420 years, God's people had an experience of God as silent, as absent. And as frustrating it is to to know that this is the way that God's kingdom come, that this is the way that that God brings out salvation through history, This is the way that God works out God's salvation in our own lives. As frustrating as that is, I can't help but also be comforted in knowing that we're not alone. That those of you who at this point feel that that experience of the absence of God, you, you are in good company. And the season of Advent, more than any other season, is an invitation to to sit in that waiting, to sit even in the, the pain of it, to, in a sense, accept it for what it is and not be too quick to try to just fix it, to, to fix it with a sermon or a a retreat or a, a, a Bible study, right? Uh, those are all great things, but my experience of the absence of God is that uh, by definition, a part of it is a lack of control. And somehow in the mystery of the coming of the kingdom, it's exactly how God often does God's best work in us. through us coming to the place where we find ourselves on our knees crying out, Jesus, where are you? Are you still there? Do you hear me? Do you hear these cries for mercy? John the Baptist uh, got a response from Jesus, and it was one of compassion 
It wasn't a rebuke and how dare you. Jesus sends the messengers back with this message, gently inviting John the Baptist to look for the signs of God's presence. Look and remember that in my ministry, people are being healed. He points John back to himself, back to Jesus, and to the the mustard seeds of the kingdom, the little signs that are signposts to the already but not yetness of the kingdom of God. He points John back to his very self. And again, there's not this neat fix to the story. John the Baptist ends up uh, living out the rest of his life behind bars, and then one day has someone show up with a sword and chop his head off. If you remember the story, it's in Mark chapter 6. Herod's showing off, Herod Agrippa is showing off at a dinner party and promises this young woman dancing anything she wants up to half his kingdom. And she asks her mother, what should I ask for? And she says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And, uh, and within probably minutes, John's life is over. And you know what baffles me about that is there's no, we never get to see a why. Like, how did that advance the story? What answer might God have had for John the Baptist if, if he would have said, why did that have to happen? Why, why can I, I, I was faithful my whole life. I did what I was supposed to do. Why, why wasn't there some generous retirement package? <laughs> in the deal here, right? And oftentimes we don't get an answer to the why of our suffering. The whole book of Job is about that. Job never really gets a why. But we do get glimpses of the kingdom and we do get the person of Jesus. The one who himself in his bringing of the kingdom, suffered and was crucified. And there seems to be something about that, that this is the way that God's kingdom is coming in a violent world. And this is the way that life And flourishing in our eventual prosperity is coming, not around death and suffering, but through it and out the other side through resurrection and life. I'll close uh, with the story of my own uh, experience. I was 18 or 19. This is one of the first times I started to, to, to understand that God... God's work in the world is taking place even when I can't see it. Um, I, it was my freshman year of college. I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I, uh, my girlfriend had broken up with me. It's okay, you can go, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, And I was, I was devastated. It was, 
there was all sorts of elements to it that I, you know, this, this narrative I had for my life had been, uh, it didn't work anymore. And there's this cascade of effects that led me into a winter of, looking back now, uh, of depression. And I remember I kept a prayer journal. I looked for the journal last night for a while and uh, couldn't find the, the missing journal where I had this experience. But, but, it was in a, but I remember just praying and praying and praying and feeling like my prayers for God to show me God's faithfulness, to remind me of God's love and presence was met with the experience of God's absence. And it was like the more I prayed, crying out to God, please God, show yourself to me, comfort me, take away this, this dark uh, Paul in my life, uh, the more it felt like my prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling and it just cycled into this deep, cold, lonely place. And I, I didn't understand why God wasn't speaking. And that went on maybe, I don't know, five, six months. And I remember one Sunday after church being so frustrated. I, I left church still just you know, feeling God's absence and wondering if I was on the verge of losing my faith. And I, I went off with a journal and sat at this little beach in Lake Mendota in Madison, Wisconsin. And I remember it was kind of the beginning of spring and sitting there and I journaled for hours in this prayer journal. And I felt like in that moment, God gave me the gift of a glimpse of a little picture of what God was up to in my life. Because I, I remember I could, I could see, looking back over this long, hard winter, that God was actually answering prayers that I had been praying without me realizing it. The prayers for wisdom and prayers for a deeper commitment to God and my devotional practices, for prayers for God to be preparing me. Uh, even at that age, I felt something of a, a calling to ministry. And I started to just get this glimpse of, oh, that wilderness where it felt like God was absent. God was actually doing some of God's best work in me. That it was through that that now I see God was actually answering my prayers. And it, it gave me a little bit of a, a healthy distrust of my own confidence to see and to know what God is doing in my life. Because the truth is God's ways are not our ways. And God is always at work, whether we see it or not, in our own lives, in the lives of the church, in the world that at times can look so despairing. My friend, uh, one of my roommates in seminary, Dave, used to say that nothing in your life is wasted. That God uses every bit of suffering and disappointment and pain, and none of it is wasted. As Paul says in Romans 8, we know that in all things God 
works for the good of those who love him. I want to encourage you today by reminding you that we don't get to see all that is going on. And to remind you that you are not alone in your waiting. And to invite you to faith, to a trust that God is still working even when we can't see it. Please pray with me. God, uh, thank you for this season of Advent. Thank you for space to name and normalize the experience of your absence and of the pain of waiting. Lord, renew our faith today as we wait, as we struggle to believe the great story of your coming, as we struggle to live as a people of hope and radical discipleship as we await your second coming. Lord, remind us of who you are, the way maker, the one who is always faithful, who is always loving, who is always good. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.